Good morning again, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you, and welcome to In-Town Church. Especially if you're visiting with us, we uh, welcome you to our church and hope that you will meet some new friends. And uh, please know I would love to meet you. We have other leaders who are eager to hear a bit of your story, maybe share a little bit about what um, God is doing here at In-Town and how you can um, be a part of that. If you have not been with us recently, we started something a little bit new last week in that uh, I'm standing right here and not at the pulpit. I'll be up there in a moment. But what we're going to do is to talk uh, for a moment with the children, because during summer, uh, they don't go to children's church. Instead, they have to stay and listen to me. And so that can be tough. And so what I've chosen to do, what we thought would be a good idea, is to try and give the children a little bit of an introduction to the sermon. And so, uh, kids, this is for you, although there's not many of you here this morning. Um, Remember, do you remember a time when mom or dad uh, was really upset with you? They were mad. Well, it's, it's not very fun, is it? We try to avoid that. And us parents, we try to avoid not getting too mad and too angry. And sometimes we fail at that. Sometimes we can be a little bit overbearing, and we respond uh, badly to the ways that you guys might misbehave. But did you know that parents also get very, very sad? That we get sad when things aren't going well in your life. We get sad not because necessarily you do something wrong, but we want what's best for you. We want you to have a wonderful life, and it saddens us when we, when we see you making choices that we don't think are best for you. Now, the story that we read this morning, we see God is sad, that God is grieved, that his heart is breaking because his children have chosen to make decisions that aren't, in fact, good for them. And we get to see a picture of God's heart. Now, can you imagine... What happens in this story is that these people, basically everyone but Noah and his family, don't care at all what God thinks. Can you imagine not caring what your parents think? Can you imagine not caring that they are happen to be sad about maybe something that you've done? Well, that's what happens to God here. And the story tells us that he sends a flood, and that's really scary. But can you imagine what it would be like living in a world that no one cares what God thinks of their actions, that no one cares about what God says? And the passage says that the world turns to violence, and everyone is competing against each other and even killing each other. And so as scary as a flood might be, living day to day in that world of violence would be very, very scary as well. And so as I talk to the adults, I'm also talking to you. But as I do the sermon, think about this, and maybe you could even put it on paper. Maybe you could take a few moments to draw while I'm talking. Draw maybe a world where people don't care what God thinks. What would that world look like? What would it be like to live day to day in that world? And then draw the picture of the world that God wants to see exist, where people do care about who he is and what he has to say to them and cares for one another. So think about those two things and maybe draw them as I'm speaking. Now this is our Old Testament reading 
This is Genesis chapter 3, and as I was talking with someone about what I was preaching on this week and what we were reading, he said, so you're taking the, the Jefferson Bible approach to the Genesis story. And I kind of chuckled because I obviously see what he means. We're jumping from 6 to 8 to 9, but it's not because we're picking and choosing certain things that we want to say and do, saying the comfortable, easy things and not the hard things. Clearly, that's not the case. But because this unit of Genesis 6 to 9 really is a a unit that is self-contained, and I want you guys to get the feel and the flow of that whole part of Scripture. This is Genesis 6, part of 8 and part of 9. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a, right, was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. But then after the flood comes, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were there with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all the living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this is indeed a, a difficult text where we see two sides of your character, and in our own limited understanding, it's hard to see how wrath can be partnered and paired with love. Father, help us to understand. Help us to see through some of the difficulties of this text the heart of your love, the heart of the gospel. Let us see Jesus, I pray in his name. Amen. Now, we've been looking at a series of texts. Uh, wow, that was a lot of force there. Is, that, am I, is there an echo or sound? Okay, maybe it's just me. We are uh, going through a series on the birth of the church, the birth of everything, the birth of the whole world. And this morning, we've come to what I would say is probably the most difficult text in this series, and certainly 
are, I think, probably one of the most difficult texts in the Bible. It's one of those that are usually given to assistant pastors or, better yet, to guest pastors because then there's some kind of plausible deniability. Well, I'm sure they didn't mean to say that. I'm sure that that's not what he meant. I didn't know that they were going to say that about the text. Well, as I prepare sermons, I try to think about who's actually going to be in the worship service. And of course, in in town, we often have and always have people who are investigating, people who are processing through the faith, whether they can believe uh, the Christian faith or not, whether they can call themselves Christians. And I imagine for you who are wondering whether or not the Bible makes sense, that this might be one of the hurdles to believing it, to believing that God is a God of grace and mercy and invites you in. Because what's going on in this passage? And we're asking a lot of you this morning, because far from just the mechanical questions of could the ark really hold all these animals, or the questions that are scientific, if we're talking about a, a global flood, it sure seems to run counter to the, the biological, the geological history that we know it. But beyond that, what kind of God regrets making mankind and then wipes us all out? It's an enormous task in 25 or so minutes to answer all of these and to recast this story in terms that will answer your objections or at least maybe dial your objections down so that this text isn't an inviolable wall to believe, that you can maybe put it on the shelf for just a moment so that you can continue investigating Jesus. But to do that, I run the risk of offending another side of the congregation, the other people that I imagine here, because many of you are quite comfortable with the traditional understandings of the textual difficulties of this passage. Because whether or not we believe that the point of the text is to report an actual event with 100% journalistic accuracy, we must admit that this story doesn't seem like pure parable, and that it's most likely that while definitely theological in nature, it's grounded in an interaction that God had with his people in real space and time. And so how do we tell this story? How do we recast it? So those of us who are comfortable with the traditional understandings and those of us who, for which the traditional understandings are barriers to faith, how do we think about that story, this story? Where does it leave us? Well, it it leaves us all with the possibility that this text, as well as just about any text of Scripture, might upset us, that it might cause us consternation, that the God of the Bible can't be squeezed into this neat little suitcase with every piece of clothing folded perfectly, that that's not what the Bible is. And whether that suitcase represents the enclosure of the believing mind or the unbelieving mind, if we come to Scripture with those types of expectations, we're going to be let down. Because as we come, through, come to Scripture, as we go through Genesis, we're going to encounter very perplexing and confounding things alongside those things that are very comforting and straightforward. But somehow this story is meant to draw us into the heart of God. This story, with all of its details, with all of the things that are perplexing and confounding, 
is meant to draw you and I into a relationship, a living relationship with God, the Father of Jesus Christ and the creator of the whole world, and to understand his heart of grace. And so we're going to look at that just two things this morning. The heart of man, what this story tells us about the heart of man, and what it tells us about the heart of God. First of all, the heart of man. The story that we read, most of us know it as the story of Noah's Ark. And likely in your homes, you grew up with a little playset of Noah and his ark and the little animals, and you could walk them up the plank and set it sail, and it was a sweet story. And you walk into any toy store now, even in Portland, you're going to find most of them are going to have some type of Noah's Ark, whether it's plush dolls or whether it's little figurines or Playmobil or whatever. And even nursery room wallpaper and bumper pads for cribs comes with Noah's Ark stuff because what says sweet dreams better than a global apocalypse? Isn't it telling, though, that that's the aspect that we as a culture have latched onto? Of course, That's a beautiful, that's a soft, that's a sweet part of this narrative. And it's easy to believe that God would care for this family and care for these animals and rescue them from this global flood that we forget it's a global flood. There's something going on that's deeper, that's more difficult to penetrate, that's more scary than just a family of plush toys escaping and being rescued. It's easy to latch onto that part, but it's also easy to be very dismissive of the larger part. And I watched an episode from the Bill Moyers show from the mid-90s. I watched it again this week, and it was a roundtable of religious thought leaders giving their thoughts on what this story meant. And of the eight, only two of them were willing to explore this presumptuous behavior of mankind that they're living in this world, that God has provided them, that God is giving them breath, and yet they're turning from him and turning on one another and killing one another. Only two of them really focused on that part of the story. Six expressed almost horror towards the act of God in sending the flood. And it wasn't just that, yes, it was a terrible thing for all of the people, but what does that tell us about God? And what they concluded, it tells us that he, like us, is evil. Alongside these cute stuffed animals and a heartwarming story, you may be encountering moral outrage at God for what he has done in this story. I was reminded as I listened to these people discuss the story of a quote. This is Jean-Paul Sartre. The best way to conceive of the fundamental project of human reality is to say that man is the being whose project is to be God. And I thought of this as I watched this, and even as I inspect my own heart, as I listen to this story and object to certain things, that, God, certainly you couldn't be saying that. God, you have no right to do that. That it's so much easier for us to stand in judgment and try and dissect God's work than allow this story to dissect us. And see, one of the people in this episode in this, on this panel says, I suggest that passages like this are the reason that the Bible, to, that people today cannot abide the Bible. Well, I agree with that, but 
is the problem with the Bible or is the problem with us? Don't we prefer to evaluate rather than to be evaluated? Don't we wish that God be a projection of our own sense of morality, be a projection of our own wishes, in fact, our own temperament? In March of 1945, Allied armies rolled across uh, the war-torn Germany heading east, and Hitler's Third Reich was crumbling, and it was all but extinct. But they still had to liberate these prisons. Now, the Americans and the Allied forces came as liberators and victors, but nothing could prepare them for what they were about to witness. Because, see, reports of these mass killings had circulated in the Western press, but not in great detail. And they were sort of hidden in kind of the centers of the newspapers and always with the caveat that these reports are unconfirmed. So no one really had an idea to the scope of what was going on in Germany. And as these allied divisions rolled east, they smiled at the fraulines and the shopkeepers and the tidy little towns that they inhabited inhabited and thought, well, these people are just like us. They're kind of like Americans. They're nice people. They take care of their town. But as they passed through these delightful little hamlets, they were on their way to Buchenwald and Auschwitz and Dachau and Ebensee. And their demeanor changed, their amiability towards just the general German person who may or may not have been involved in this mass extinction of the Jewish people, turned to scorn and hatred and the question of how could you? How could you do this? A Western journalist writing about this a number of years later says, but the Holocaust was clearly more than a testament to the beastliness of Germans or the excesses of fascism. In an editorial called Gazing into the Pit, the Christian Century wrote that the atrocities showed the horror of humanity itself when it has surrendered to its capacity for evil. Buchenwald and the other concentration camps spelled doom, but it is not simply the doom of the Nazis. It is the doom of of man unless he can be brought to worship at the feet of the living God. Now, this is a a secular journalist who's picking up on this uh, Christian magazine commentary, and he adds, even for secular intellectuals, the Holocaust supplied the most powerful brief yet for the existence of original sin. Two centuries earlier, thinkers were asserting the perfectibility of man. Now they were debating whether Germans were human? The answer, tragically, was yes. But you see, so were the American liberators. As they marched across Germany, they were human as well. And as they saw the extent of Nazi madness and murder, they turned to bring immediate justice and judgment, at times dragging SS officers out of their hospital beds and shooting them in front of their former captors. George Patton, the general, is said to have climbed on a jeep as they were going through Germany and said, see what these SOBs did, see what these bastards did. I don't want you to take a prisoner. How easy it is to stand in judgment of someone else and their inhumanity, and yet that runs right through the center of us as well. 
In verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Haven't we seen this to be true? Haven't we seen throughout history that the only necessary thing for evil to reign is the right circumstances? Can we really say, how could you? Can we really say to God, how could you do this? Einstein, as I quoted in your bulletin, says, only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity, and I'm not sure about the former. Isn't that true? If we can press pause on our moral outrage for a moment, then the text can read us. The text can interpret us. The text can tell us that without the intervention of God, without the prompting of God, that our calculated self-interest will inevitably, consistently lead to death and lead to violence. We saw it as Adam and Eve seek to become their own gods and masters, and it leads to their expulsion from from the garden. And then in the generation right after them, there's murder. And eventually, death comes to everyone. And here we see humanity fast in pursuit of their own interests, competing against one another, seeking to be first, wanting to be creator rather than creature. God didn't flood the world because of some just generic, run-of-the-mill sin. He didn't flood the world because they were overeating or sleeping through synagogues. He flooded the world because there was this vicious cycle of violence that made the world unfit to live in, that turned the purposes of the world upside down. So yes, the flood is scary, but living in a world like that is scary as well. It says in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people For the earth is filled with violence because of them. We must, as we wrestle with some of the difficult features of this text, and can we believe it? Can we reconcile it with Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount and his message of grace? As we wrestle with that, and we should, we also have to wrestle with this text as a lens over our own heart. Will our primary interest be vetting God's actions, or letting the text vet us, letting the text interpret us, because it permits us to take a glimpse inside our own heart and inside the heart of human imagination as it really is, and what we will become if we are left alone, what we will become without God's intervention. It says that the imagination of the thoughts of the human heart were unrelievedly hostile to God and his purposes. That's what's going on in this text. And indeed, God takes an uncompromising seriousness towards the purposes of his creation and to those who would destroy them and controvert them. And he acts when those purposes are resisted. But you see, that's not the end of the story. The first part of the story is the problem. The first part of the story is the heart of man and how corruptible and consistently corrupt it is and what it would lead to without God's intervention. 
But we also see the heart of God that, though difficult to understand in the flood, through the lens of the flood, what it tells us about his heart is so important. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. It's been said that, that grief is what the Godward side of judgment looks like. And this story, if we'll read it carefully, is not about a world assaulted by a distant God who flies into a rage because his people won't obey, but a God who, like a parent, hurts and endures and for many centuries is patient with his creation, a God who is a grieving and pained parent, distressed over what's happening to his children and to his creation. God's heart, it says, was, was filled with pain. So if our objection is, what kind of loving God sends a flood? I understand that, and it's a valid thing to think through, but could we not invert that and stand it on its head and ask instead, what kind of God would stand outside of his creation and allow it to function independently of his grace, to function any way that it wanted to? Would that be a loving God at all? You see, the objection runs both ways because truly loving people don't respond to, with benign tolerance towards destructive behavior on, par, on the part of those that they love. Good parents don't sit on the sidelines where while their children make terrible, dysfunctional, unhealthy choices and harm themselves. You see, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the ultimate form of hate is, is indifference. Could God stand back and allow things to spiral into continual disarray? Would that be a loving God? Would that be a God that would invite worship, that would invite relationship? The more you love someone, the more you love something, the less you're willing to stand by and see it despoiled. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The very fabric of creation, the purposes for which God had created the world and created humanity in the first place, were being ripped apart. And all the while, mankind is thumbing their nose at the one who made them and loves them. And so in sorrow and grief over his creation, he sends judgment. But as we read, as the storm Rages as the flood rages. It says in verse 8 1 that God remembers Noah. And this is this beautiful Hebrew word that doesn't mean that he's recalled it to mind. It doesn't mean that he's forgotten Noah and now has remembered him. That's what we think about remember. But remember in the Hebrew mind is a commitment. To creation. It's a commitment to the person that you've remembered. It's a commitment to never abandon that person. And he causes the rain to recede because he remembers Noah. He remembers his great love for this family. He remembers his love for his creation. And he causes the rain and the waters to recede. And Noah and his family and all the animals come out of the ark. So problem solved, right? Only one person in his family survive, 
And in verse 6-9, we read that Noah is said to be a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So clearly now, in this new creation, as Noah comes out and begins to repopulate, then everything's going to be fine. The story will be different. God has found his man to redeem the world. But that's not the basis of God's covenant. Never again will I curse the earth, curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. But that was the reason for sending the flood in the very beginning. He floods the earth, and everything is still the same. And that's because though Noah was righteous and blameless, it was a relative righteousness and blameless. His heart that he took on the ark was the heart that he took off. And a flood, the threat of judgment, the fear of repercussions will never be enough to change someone's heart. Telling us what to do and what to avoid will never be enough because our hearts are turned in on themselves. Our hearts are seeking our own benefit and seeking to be first. And so just setting up the rules is not going to create a world in which people thrive and love one another because what God is after is not behavior modification, but it is heart change. It is a heart that longs not to be first, but longs to love God and put others first. Something else must happen. You can't just start over because you're right back where you started. And that's exactly what's going on. And what God is saying is that this is not the ultimate solution. Something else must happen. God must do something new. And Noah is not the ultimate thing. He's not the ultimately the new thing, but he points to it. What does Noah do? He's righteous, and he's blameless, and he's faithful, and yet he offers a sacrifice. What does that represent? 8.20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Because what did it say of Noah? Noah was a righteous man, a blameless man among the people of his time. You see, even Noah only has a relative righteousness. And in the ultimate sense, neither you nor I nor Noah is completely righteous in heart and therefore blameless. We all only have a relative righteousness. And we all like to exploit that. We all like to say, but look at that person. And therefore, it reflects well on ourselves. But because we are not ultimately righteous, do we really have the right to say, how could you, God? Do we really have the right to say, no fair, or stand in judgment over God or even other people? Noah, who is a righteous man, offers a sacrifice. What does a sacrifice do? It confesses that you are not independent. It confesses that you are in need of God and you are in need of His grace. Even with His relative righteousness, He knows that He needs something to have His sins atoned for. What would that tempt us to do? You see the whole world destroyed and you come out of the ark and you've been saved because you're a righteous and blameless person. 
how tempting it would be to look down our noses at all of those dead bodies and say, well, look at what God thinks of you and look at what God thinks of me. No. Noah gives a sacrifice. He sacrifices to say, even I don't deserve this. The act of bringing me through the waters was an act of pure mercy. He knows, knows that he needs something else to have his sins atoned for. And the something else is represented in that sacrifice. The point of Noah's sacrifice is to point to the need of a redeemer, that he can't redeem himself, that he has to look to another redeemer. And God sends judgment in the form of a flood, but it wasn't enough to change our hearts. The threat of judgment, the threat of punishment, can only make us comply out of fear. Maybe we'll change our behavior, but if we change our behavior and every inclination of our heart is still focused on ourselves, we're still missing the point, and we're still prone to violence, and our world and all of creation begins to spiral in on top of itself. None of us can work ourselves out of this fix. And that is ultimately the point of the story, is that we are helpless without God's intervention. None of us can work ourselves out of this fix, and none of us has the right to say, no fair. But there's one who is wholly righteous, wholly obedient, completely pure in heart, completely blameless, the only one who could say no fair, the only one who could say, I don't deserve this, says exactly the opposite. He goes to the cross. He could say, I deserve a kingdom and a crown, and yet we find him on the cross suffering for our sin. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, comes not bringing a flood of judgment, but takes judgment on himself. Noah realized that God was the kind of God who provides a substitute. And Jesus becomes the substitute which Noah's burnt offering only pointed to. You see, even that sacrifice that Noah made for God wasn't enough to completely heal him. Jesus had to come and be Noah's redeemer as well, just as we need one. God's heart was grieved. God's heart was in pain. It was being torn apart because his people had walked away from him. His people had said, I don't need you any longer. His heart was grieved. He sends a flood of judgment, and yet the problem is still there. And so what does he do? He sends himself. He sends a son. He sends a redeemer and says, all of the judgment that I could inflict upon you, I instead inflict upon my own son, and he takes it on your behalf. And that, friends, is what Noah's ultimate point was. Noah's ultimate hope was. And God promises never again to send a flood, but instead he sends a redeemer. And friends, that's where we're left in this text. With all of its difficulty, the question is, are you independent? Are you self-sufficient? Are you able to take care of yourself, spiritually speaking, or are you like Lemon, who we baptized this morning, who's completely dependent? That's the picture And that's what this text is inviting us to do, is to take hold of what is represented in that sacrifice. Take hold of the Redeemer who comes and says, judgment for me, not for you, my life for you. That's our challenge. That's our invitation as we come to the table. Let's pray.
Lord, I pray that we would see through the lens of this text your great heart of grace. And though it's difficult to see in contrast with this flood of judgment, Lord, let us not lose heart. Let us think well. Let us look to Jesus and let him be the interpretation of how we think about this Old Testament passage. And Father, let us walk towards him just as he has walked towards us in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name.